Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bay Presbyterian Church. It's good to see all of you here. Glad to have you, especially glad to have our guests with us. Certainly hope that you'll make yourselves at home among us. I just want to say a word of welcome. Uh, Rachel's going to tell you what you really need to know. But uh, I am certainly glad that you've taken time out to be here. I know it's going to be a profitable afternoon as we all look forward to learning a great deal. If you're visiting and if this is your first time and need to know it, restrooms are over there to your right, to my left. Both are there. So if you go in that direction, you'll find what you need. Got a kitchen back there if you should need some water or refreshing in the course of things. Make yourselves at home as well. But again, I'll let Rachel give us more details. What I can do is open us with prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we praise you, O Lord, and thank you for your gracious kindness to us and the opportunity to be together here this afternoon to learn important information about an important topic. We thank you for our speaker who has made himself available, and thank you for him coming to serve us in this way, and we pray that you will minister to him as he informs us. Please bless him and use him. And give us all the ability to uh, absorb the information we need to that we may be of use to our loved ones and to ourselves. For the glory of your name, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Rachel. Thank you. All right. Before we begin, I just wanted to thank our Transitions of Life team that has made today possible. Um, this team includes Suzanne Whitney, Darla Egley, Becky Ham, Nancy Diller, Jill Bosman, Pastor John, and myself. Um, and I just wanted to thank all of them for all of the time, energy, and the work that they put into bringing all of the lectures uh, that we bring to, you, to the Bay family and for making sure that everything runs smoothly on the day of the event. We are very grateful for you guys. Thank you very much. Um, and I just want to let you guys know that this is um, a day that we have been looking forward to for almost six years. Um, I had the opportunity of listening to uh, Dr. Mast on October of 2017 at an AACC conference. Um, I had always had an interest in Alzheimer's, uh, but knew very little about it and wanted to take advantage of his lecture. Uh, he introduced us to something that was new to me, and that was a gospel-centered perspective to Alzheimer's that I had never associated with the care of those with Alzheimer's. I found his approach so refreshing uh, that I bought a book for myself as well as for Pastor John. And a year later, Pastor John said, we need to bring Dr. Mast in to educate our congregation. And I said, do you think he'll come? <laughs> and he said, this is Florida. <laughs> Um, so uh, we are very grateful to be able to prevent, uh, present uh, Dr. Mass today, and I do want to let you know that there will be a Q&A time, so please hold off any questions or any comments that you have until he finishes his lecture. Um, there will also be a book table over to the side there um, where you can buy uh, his book, Second Forgetting, um, and we will also have cookies and cupcakes available afterwards uh, so that you guys can kind of connect back there and talk about what we've discussed today. Um, and so I just want to give a little introduction to um, Dr. Benjamin Mast. He is an expert in Alzheimer's disease and dementia care. Um, he's also a licensed clinical psychologist and board certified 
um, geopsychologist, and it, he is also the professor and chair of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. And he is the author of Second Forgetting, Remembering the Power of Go the Gospel and Alzheimer's Disease. So Benjamin Mass, thank you for coming. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's, I was saying when we were sitting down beforehand, um, you know, Rachel mentioned my book, which came out 10 years ago. Uh, now time really flies, uh, but I don't have to tell you that, do I? Um, you know, you really hope that maybe one or two people will read it or, or maybe benefit from it. And so to hear that you were there in 2017 and it led to this uh, means a lot to me. Um, I'm really thankful to be part of something that I feel like God has given me as um, a calling in life, and that is, um, you know, to help people live with uh, the changes associated with Alzheimer's disease. So we've got an hour together where I'm going to talk, and after that, I'll answer your questions. Whenever I start talking about this, I know that people came here for different reasons. Uh, maybe you are just curious. Maybe you didn't have anything to do on a Friday afternoon. Uh, but maybe you're worried about somebody that you know or you're already taking care of them. Or maybe you're worried about yourself. Uh, I just want to say I am going to talk you through uh, what Alzheimer's disease is. We're going to talk about what's happening in the brain and how it affects people. And a lot of that can be tough to take if you haven't heard it before. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of a heads up that uh, Alzheimer's disease can be really difficult. And, uh, but we're not going to stop there. I want to talk about uh, uh, biblical hope in the context of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so when we think about Alzheimer's, we know it's very difficult. Uh, we have all sorts of uh, negative expectations and stigma surrounding it. But I also come here to talk to you about the gospel uh, and our God who is described as being able to do uh, more than we ask or imagine. And so while we're working through the difficult parts of Alzheimer's disease, I hope you'll stick with me. I hope that you will um, listen to some of the biblical perspectives of what it might mean to live with Alzheimer's and how to take care of somebody who's experiencing that uh, disease. So let's jump in. Uh, what I'd like to do first is spend about the first uh, third of our time together talking about what Alzheimer's disease is and why people are so afraid of it. Then I'd like to move into uh, biblical perspectives on living with Alzheimer's and then talk about uh, family caregiving. We have to do both of those because the person who lives with the disease is affected and the people who surround them and take care of them are equally affected. Uh, it's really a life changer. So sometimes when uh, we start to talk about Alzheimer's disease, people will say, well, what, what about dementia, Alzheimer's disease? What's the difference between those two? Sometimes people in clinic will say to me, well, he doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. He just has a little bit of dementia. So what's the difference, right? It's important um, that we understand the distinction between the two. So I, I want to uh, first talk about when we talk about dementia, this is what we call syndrome, which just means there are uh, a series of symptoms that occur together that have a variety of causes. Now, as people get older, you may have heard this, uh, memory changes. We can't remember as well as we used to. 
It happens to everyone. It's, hap it's starting to happen to me as a 50-year-old man. A man. Uh, these things start to happen in middle age, and they continue on. But for most people, normal age-related change is relatively mild, and people find ways to compensate for it, and they can stay independent, live on their own, right, without much help. We start talking about dementia when it's more significant decline in memory and other cognitive abilities. It's a change from where they were before, and it interferes with their daily functioning. So when you're still working, you still have a job, it might interfere with, interfere with your work performance. Uh, but if you're retired, we start to think about the way it affects your ability to take care of your household, remember to take your medications appropriately, pay the bills, remember that you already paid the bills so that you don't do it uh, more than one time. So this is a departure from what we would consider to be normal. It's a matter of degree and how much it affects your daily life. If you're forgetful, but you still function in independently and the people around you agree that you function independently, uh, that's not typically dementia. There are many causes of dementia, and Alzheimer's disease is one of them. So Alzheimer's is one type of dementia, and one of the reasons why they get used interchangeably is that Alzheimer's disease is by far the most common type of dementia. 60 to 80% of people who have dementia have it caused by underlying Alzheimer's disease in the brain. There are other types of dementia that are not Alzheimer's, so dementia associated with strokes and vascular disease, uh, dementia with Lewy bodies, which is a little bit like a cross between Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Frontotemporal dementia is a younger onset, typically dementia, uh, 50s and 60s, maybe change in personality or language. And then finally, it's worth noting uh, that if you drink long enough and heavy enough, you essentially pickle the brain in alcohol, leading to a progressive dementia. So dementia is the broad category. Alzheimer's is one specific type. So sometimes I'll use the uh, analogy of cancer and leukemia. Cancer is the broad category. Leukemia is one specific type. There are other cancers that fall into that category. Dementia is the broad category. Alzheimer's is one type. It's just that it's by far the most common type, and it's the one that we know the most about. So let's talk about some facts related to Alzheimer's, and this is where it starts, this is where the, uh, we cover some of the more difficult material, not conceptually, but emotionally. So Alzheimer's uh, disease typically begins in uh, the gradual onset of memory problems. Right? And I already said, you know, most of us don't remember as well as we used to. And in the context of Alzheimer's disease, it's typically in the area of short-term memory. So recent conversations, appointments, uh, people you met recently. And in Alzheimer's disease, it progressively gets worse. So when you have these uh, particular uh, forms of forgetfulness, they come on over a very, very long period of time. Alzheimer's never comes on over days or weeks or months. And uh, actually, the uh, progression and development is much longer than we used to think. So these uh, problems that people experience in terms of their memory are caused by some underlying changes in the brain. And we're going to talk about those very briefly. 
But what we now know is that the brain is changing 10 to 20 years before people start to show symptoms. So we have these microscopic changes starting to develop, and people live for one to two decades completely asymptomatic. They are no more forgetful than anybody else. If you brought them to the doctor or the psychologist and said, test their memory, it would come out completely normally. So there's a long period of time in Alzheimer's disease where the brain is changing, but no one knows, right? You don't notice it. This used to just be an idea that was out there in the research, and now there are methods to show that, in fact, it's true. So one practical implication for this is sometimes when somebody starts to show symptoms and they finally end up at the doctor's office, and maybe you've got a spouse and a sibling trying to say how long they thought the person has started to show problems and they can't agree. Well, one of the reasons they can't agree is these things come on so subtly that you don't even notice, right? And then they slowly creep in and next thing you know, this, this has started to become a real problem. So what are these underlying changes? Let me give you a, the very short version and I know this is maybe a little bit hard to see. In the context of Alzheimer's disease, there are two changes that happen in the brain that essentially are Alzheimer's disease. So the first one is what we call the development of amyloid plaques. In these little pictures, if you can see them, I don't think you can see the pointer, this is uh, showing you the outside of a neuron, one type of brain cell. There's that little blue squiggly line and that is amyloid precursor protein. It's part of a normal brain cell. God put it there. It functions just fine most of the time. For unknown reasons in Alzheimer's disease, there is uh, an enzyme that acts upon that protein, snips it into fragments, and those fragments of protein cluster together between brain cells. It disrupts their ability to communicate and the cells die. This is the earliest change in brains of people with Alzheimer's, the development of amyloid plaques. Now, I don't think it's super important uh, that you understand the difference between plaques and tangles and what protein was involved. But if this is an area where you are wanting to know more and if you're wanting to keep up with the treatments, you're going to be hearing a lot about amyloid. Okay, so amyloid protein is a really big deal when it comes to Alzheimer's, but we only have an hour, so we're going to keep moving through. If you want to talk about it more afterwards, I will be happy to. That's the earliest change. The second happens within neurons or within brain cells. Every brain cell has a long structure that is essentially uh, akin to a railroad track that transports nutrients along the length of the cell. Uh, it's called a microtubule. Again, the underlying biology isn't super important other than to know for unknown reasons in Alzheimer's disease. Another protein, again, little blue squiggly lines in this picture called tau, breaks off. That train track support structure falls apart. It can't transport nutrients any longer and the cell dies. So there are two underlying causes of cell death in brains of people with Alzheimer's disease plaques and tangles. So the way diagnosis used to work in Alzheimer's disease was that we could only say somebody had probable or possible Alzheimer's disease. Maybe you knew somebody who had that diagnosis. Uh, 
you could only confirm that people had these plaques and tangles on an autopsy, right? Which after the person has died. And that was the definitive diagnosis. Now what's happening in our field is they're developing ways to detect plaques and tangles in the living brain. But you don't see them on a CT scan or a brain MRI like your doctor might give you. And we'll talk about why they might give you those tests afterwards, because again, we just have an hour. Uh, but this is changing the way these things happen. What I want you to be more aware of, other than the basic underlying changes, what are the implications of these? So one, we already said they come on very, very gradually. Two, you can't see them on, in an average doctor's visit with an average brain scan or even uh, drawing some blood. But it is a very real neurobiological condition, right? And what I want you to appreciate is when you're close to somebody who's developing Alzheimer's disease, sometimes it's really tempting to think if they just tried harder, they would remember. Or maybe they've always been particularly stubborn, and now they are so much more so, and you think this is just their personality and the way they've always been. If they would stop being so stubborn, they would remember, they could do the things that I want. And I just want you to remember that a person living with Alzheimer's disease is like you and me, right? They're trying to make sense of their day-to-day -day experience. They're trying to form meaningful connections. They're trying to do the things that are important, but they're doing it through these things that have led to all this cell death in the brain. I said earlier, there is a period of time where the brain is changing, but people aren't showing symptoms. And if you can see this, there's this long period of time that we call preclinical Alzheimer's disease. This is a time where the brain is changing, the plaques and tangles are developing, but functioning is completely normal, right? I already said I was 50 once. I don't think any of you care, but what this means is if I were to show, show symptoms at 65, standing here with you now, my brain might actually be developing the plaques and tangles. And I wouldn't know, and you wouldn't know, right? So when people start to show the early symptoms, the brain has already been very heavily damaged by these plaques and tangles and cell death. Preclinical Alzheimer's is not yet a focus of treatment. Um, but I can imagine in the next 10 years it will be, okay? They're already doing those trials. Again, more we can talk about afterwards, perhaps. So the longer you live with this, unfortunately, the more the brain is damaged. So we said that uh, plaques and tangles led to cell death. The third change is atrophy or shrinkage of the brain tissue, right? So. Uh, if the plaques and tangles lead to cell death, the brain tissue is actually going to shrink, right? This is another thing that happens as we get older. All of our brains shrink, right? Just like your bicep might shrink, your brain also shrinks, even if you make it active. But it shrinks much more in Alzheimer's. You can see it here. Um, there's just much less brain tissue. The spaces between the tissue is much larger. This is a more dramatic image of it. Right? So you've got a normally aging brain on the left, severe advanced Alzheimer's on the right. Again, I don't, I don't mean to show you figures just so that you would see the, the devastation of this on the brain, but 
when you're interacting with somebody and you're taking care of somebody, this is the neurobiological lens that they're trying to interact with you, okay? It's harder. And when you see some of the significant cognitive and behavioral problems, even personality changes, you can see why. This is what's happening. So people live longer with it. It spreads. If you, uh, there's a little bit of blue shading here. This is early Alzheimer's. This is the plaques and tangles. Middle stage is here. You see it start to spread more widely throughout the brain. And in late stage dementia, it's really spread pretty much everywhere. And as a result, memory and thinking become increasingly impaired. You know, I really like talking about Alzheimer's because I think it's important, but I hate telling you all these things, right? It's a very difficult condition. So when we think about the changes, it might start as short-term memory loss, right? So it's much easier for people with Alzheimer's to, disease to remember things from 30 years ago than this morning. Uh, we'll talk about why that is uh, in a little bit. But this might show up as forgetting uh, appointments, uh, forgetting conversations earlier in the day, repeating the same question over and over. I don't mean once, I mean five, six times, right? And that's a function of the short-term memory loss. They don't remember that they asked the question. They don't remember the answer that you gave. But it can show up in other ways, word-finding problems, getting lost. For my, one of my grandfathers that had Alzheimer's disease, that was the symptom that made us actually, uh, Rachel, I said I wasn't going to tell the story, and here I go. So uh, We thought my grandfather had uh, you know, hearing loss. He didn't pay attention. Uh, you know, If you could just get him to focus, he wouldn't keep asking the same questions. And then one day, he left his house to go to his meeting downtown and didn't return and showed up in the next state 300 miles away, right? Sometimes it takes something big for us to take notice. It comes on so gradually. So there are a variety of changes. It isn't just memory. It's just that memory is the most prominent symptom. Okay, need to keep moving. One more negative piece of information, and then we're going to move on. Unfortunately, the current treatments that we have for Alzheimer's disease can't stop this process. So we're living in a world where if you have an infection, you take an antibiotic and that takes care of it. If you've got high blood pressure, you can take the medicine and it'll at least manage it well as long as you're consistent about it. Uh, even cancer, uh, as many will say, is more treatable than Alzheimer's. There's no cure. So for people who are currently diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, what we expect is that they will experience progressive decline, more disability, depending on other people for things that they used to do for themselves. Um, and you know we just don't have a way to make this go away. Now, it isn't that there aren't medications, and I'm not telling you not to take them. Uh, it's just that we don't have a cure. So let me give you two uh, bits of information about the current medication options because it's changed a lot in the last two years. Um, so most of the medications for Alzheimer's disease have been around for decades. Uh, they are symptomatic treatments that are designed to help boost your memory and thinking. 
They uh, target specific uh, brain chemicals and try to boost ones that are low and help you remember better. They were never designed to do anything about the plaques and tangles. Okay? Uh, these are things like uh, Aricept, Dinepazil, Nemenda. Those are all the common first-line treatments that your doctor would probably offer you or your loved one. And they give some people some benefit for some period of time. That's the fairest assessment. Are they worth taking? Well, that's a conversation you should have with your doctor. I'm a lowly psychologist. I can't tell you what to take or what not to take. But they aren't like an antibiotic for an infection, right? Okay, so there have been some pretty significant developments in Alzheimer's treatment. Uh, everything before was symptomatic. Now there are two FDA-approved disease-modifying therapies. So I said you're going to hear a lot about amyloid. The development of amyloid plaques, there is now two different uh, FDA-approved medications that actually slow the development and remove amyloid plaques. And you're thinking, that seems, that's remarkable, right? So we can not only show that people are, are developing them, there are, are ways to remove them. Unfortunately, the difficulty that so far, I mean, these are medicines that just came about in the last year or two, um, their effect on functioning is pretty minimal. So they can show dramatic effects on the brain and removal of this amyloid deposition, but people still continue to show decline. So we're hopeful they will get better. Um, but when we talk about hope in the context of Alzheimer's disease, again, we live in a day where if you have a medical condition, you think, well, I'm hopeful because I know there's a good treatment. And I think there are good treatments for Alzheimer's disease, but uh, for people who are currently living with Alzheimer's, uh, our hope is going to be elsewhere. So again, we can talk more about this. The last one of these I'll mention, there's two out, Aduhelm, um, the drug maker just pulled it uh, off the market because it wasn't quite what they had hoped, and anticipation for a new medication um, by Eli Lilly, which is supposed to be approved by the FDA this month. These are dramatic improvements in terms of the science of Alzheimer's, but um, the results have been a little bit disappointing. Okay, so sometimes people want to know, when should I ask for an evaluation? And uh, I can also answer questions about specific uh, after we finish. But I will say there's a few general things to keep in mind. One is we're all experiencing change in our memory and even our thinking speed. How quickly we think is a reliable change as we get older. So how do you know? You can look what I have here. So if it's a significant change, if it's getting worse over time, it's, it's affecting your uh, ability to do things that you used to be able to do. If you have a family history of Alzheimer's or other dementias, I'm going to just go ahead and say the last one is most important. If somebody who is close to you asks you to talk to your doctor about it, it means that they might see something that you aren't aware of. Because one of the difficult things about Alzheimer's disease is oftentimes the people around you have a greater appreciation of how much your memory is changing than you do. Because sometimes the Alzheimer's disease affects the brain in a way that it's hard to assess our own ability. And so people get into a conflict, right? 
I feel like I'm doing fine. You feel like I've really changed. What I'm saying is if you're sitting here today and somebody that who you love and trust, those are important characteristics, says, I think you need to talk to your doctor, that's a good sign that you should do it. Some of you maybe have had a first-degree relative who uh, had Alzheimer's disease and you're quite anxious about it. Um, that's a different situation, right? We know that uh, people are very afraid of getting Alzheimer's disease, and so you're hanging on what I'm saying about this and wondering if it's you. Um, again, I think you talk to people around you and you say, do you notice anything? And will you promise me that if you see something, you'll have the courage to tell me? Because when you are what people call the worried well, the people who are functioning just fine but are very anxious about Alzheimer's disease, the tendency is for every time you forget something to think, oh, this is it. I knew it, right? And that makes you ruminate on memory failure, and it keeps you from thinking more clearly, and you'll start to be more forgetful. And it's not necessarily that you have Alzheimer's disease, it's that you're very anxious about getting Alzheimer's disease. We've known this for a long time. So having people you love and trust is going to be very important. Okay. All right, so a little bit about the future. Uh, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know uh, that Alzheimer's disease is very common. Age is one of the biggest risk factors. So as we live in a society where people live longer, we're going to see more cases of Alzheimer's. So the older you are, the greater your risk, unfortunately. There is some evidence to suggest that um, living healthier is actually cutting the rates, or at least the growth of Alzheimer's disease, um, a bit. But for now, let me move on. We can come back to that uh, if there's some time. Okay, so what is it about Alzheimer's disease? Maybe this is an obvious question because I've just rehearsed all the difficult many of the difficult things about Alzheimer's disease, but what is it that makes people, when they do surveys of older adults, they'd say, you know, what conditions are you most afraid of? Why is Alzheimer's number one? You know, it surpassed cancer uh, quite a while ago. And I don't know the answer to that other than to say, um, you know, when you develop Alzheimer's disease or when somebody you love develops it, it affects something very core to their being, right? Your ability to remember, uh, your, it affects people's communication in some cases, so that people who are close to us don't know what we want or what we're trying to tell them. It can affect our relationships. And for some people, they worry, you know, maybe it's going to affect their faith and their ability to remember the Lord, right? Uh, this was one of the things that came up uh, before I wrote uh, Second Forgetting that, you know, people were, one of the implications of developing Alzheimer's was, you know, my faith is the core of who I am. What if I forget about God? What if I can't remember the things that have brought me so much comfort throughout my life? Where does that leave me? Right. So I think there's good reason to think about why this might be so difficult and the different uh, spiritual and relational pieces of that. All right, so I'd like to turn here and start to talk about hope. And when I set out to write this book, one of the things I wanted to write about is how to live well with Alzheimer's disease. And uh, maybe that seems like 
a bit of a paradox at this point, but I think the point is, you know, it's going to be a difficult condition. How can we live as well as possible? And what I came to realize was that as a person of faith for whom uh, my relationship with the Lord and uh, biblical truth was such a key part of living well for me, if I'm living well, I don't want to say that, but you know, that's what I'm shooting for. I couldn't legitimately write without including a biblical perspective. And so what I want to share with you are um, some thoughts uh, from Scripture and also things that people have told me are helpful for them as they are on this journey. So a few sources of biblical hope uh, in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And these might sound a little counterintuitive at first. Uh, the first is God's call to remember him. The second is that God fully knows us and intercedes for us. And finally, God's promise to never forget us. We're going to go through each of these uh, together. So what is really interesting about um, being an Alzheimer's person like I am, I spend most of my week focusing on Alzheimer's disease and people living with it, and being a person who is uh, invested in Scripture, is how often remembering and forgetting are mentioned in the Bible. It's everywhere once you start reading for it. And so you see it uh, in the Old Testament, uh, especially in the story of the Israelites. And I won't presume everybody knows all the stories, but certainly you've heard the stories of the, you know, the plagues and the Israelites leaving uh, captivity in Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea and crossing. And What's interesting about that is you'd think that would be something you would never, ever forget, right? Or at least it would make you always trust God because, my goodness, right? All these things happen. But what the story says in the, in the Old Testament is it isn't more than a few days or a few weeks where they're out in the wilderness and things have changed for them and they have quickly forgotten what God has done. And essentially they say, you just brought us out here to die. Couldn't we at least go back to captivity where at least we had something to eat? And as they go through their uh, journey in the wilderness, the Lord is constantly calling them to remember his faithfulness in the past, the way that he brought them out of something very difficult. He calls them to remember that he will be present with them in the trials. And he calls them to remember his promises for a better future. We see the call to remember in the New Testament, uh, in the stories of Jesus, who promises to send the Holy Spirit to help the disciples remember all that he has taught them so that they can faithfully write it down in Scripture. He shares the Last Supper with them and gives them an object lesson in remembering and says, do this in remembrance of me. It's almost as if God knows we have trouble remembering, right? And it isn't just Alzheimer's we can be the most faithful people and a crisis hits or a trial hits and we totally forget all the times that we've been taken care of in the past. We get this spiritual amnesia. So I recognize I've been talking about a disease of forgetting and then I said remembering is part of the hope. And so I want to explain a little bit about what that might look like for us. So in Alzheimer's disease, I said that the earliest changes in memory were short-term memory, very recent things. The reason for that is the brain structures that are affected earliest and most heavily in Alzheimer's disease are the hippocampus. It's 
right in the medial temporal lobes, which is just on the inside of the skull from where your ears are. We don't need a big neuroanatomy lesson, but you need to know about the hippocampus is these are brain structures that store new memories. So for you to remember anything that I've said today, unless you wrote it down, which is a different story, uh, your hippocampus needs to take what you're focusing on right now and store it in another location in the brain so that you can go back and access it later. It's just like storing a file, a Word document on your hard drive or putting away one of the manila files in your file cabinet. That's what the hippocampus is doing. Now, if you don't, if you don't put the file in the file cabinet and you go to look for it later, it's not there. That's what's happening in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease who have trouble with memory. They're not storing the new memories as effectively as they used to. And so it doesn't matter how long you look for them in the file cabinet or on the hard drive, they're just not there. So we've done a really good job in Alzheimer's training and science of emphasizing what parts of memory are very heavily affected in Alzheimer's disease. So people have difficulty remembering recent events, conversations, new information, new learning is very difficult in Alzheimer's disease. That's a function of the memory problem. But what we haven't done as good of a job of is exploring the areas that are relatively stronger in terms of memory. Because memory is not a unitary thing. There are different types of memory. So if we want to think about how to love people with Alzheimer's well, how to interact with them in a way that shows them grace, we want to find ways to engage them where they're strong and where they're most comfortable and try to avoid putting them on the spot in the areas where they are most forgetful. So this is something we need to learn to do a bit better. So recent information is the most difficult. So visiting your uh, loved one with Alzheimer's or quizzing them about what they've done today is a very natural thing to do, right? I mean, when my kids come home from college, I ask them what they've been doing. If you haven't seen somebody in a while, you ask them what they did today or what they had for breakfast. Just know that in Alzheimer's disease, that information is the hardest for them to generate, and they're more likely to start making things up. Right? They're filling in the blanks because they don't want to admit, I don't know even if I had breakfast. Right? But there are other parts of memory. So older autobiographical memories, the memories of your own story, especially from the distant past. Those are relatively spared in the earlier stages of Alzheimer's. Procedural memories. Well, when we say something is like riding a bike, that's procedural memory. You know, when you come up to a bike, assuming you know how to ride one, you don't step to it and think consciously, now what's first? Right? Do I, you know, you just do it, right? Your body knows. So procedural memories are relatively spared in Alzheimer's disease, and we'll talk about what that might look like. And lastly is emotional memory. So emotional memory is memory for the way things felt. And there is emerging evidence in Alzheimer's disease research that sometimes people with Alzheimer's disease remember the way we made them feel, even if they can't remember what we said or did. 
And that's because it ties into another memory system, which has really strong implications for the way that we care for people and interact with them. All right, so how do we use these and how do these fit with uh, our encouragement from the Lord to remember, uh, to remember him and his faithfulness? So how can we do this? Let me just quickly move through. So the first thing is, in terms of our interaction with people, again, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, you know, my mother can remember, you know, things from 30, 40 years ago like it was yesterday, but she can't remember what happened this morning. Uh, that happens all the time for people. And one way that we can really engage people and love them well is to engage their stories. Uh, our stories are important in forming who we are. They're often a source of a lot of emotion and reassurance. And so one of the things we want to think about is if we want to love people well and engage them in terms of their memory function where they're stronger to be more gracious uh, is to go back to their stories of long ago. It isn't that these are completely unaffected, right? They may not tell the stories in the same way. They might have more repetition. They might not be as linear as they used to be. But if you want to engage people where they're comfortable talking, this is where you start. Uh, think about the different phases of life. Um, more recent is going to be more difficult. Most people, Alzheimer's or not, when you ask them to reminisce, have this bump of more memories in late adolescence and early adulthood. And so that is a prime area. If you're looking for where to cast that you might catch a fish, uh, that's a good place to think. So some people have difficulty telling their stories. They progress to a point where that's difficult for them. So one thing we can do is tell their stories for them. And this, we're thinking at a more advanced stage here. Um, think about using multiple sensory modalities, so touch, smell, sound, to help people remember. You know, smell can bring back a memory faster than any sensory system. One woman who I interviewed for uh, Second Forgetting talked about the difficulty of putting her mother into a nursing home, and she promised her quite dangerously that she never would. You know, that's a hard promise to keep sometimes. Uh, and she knew it would be difficult, but what she didn't know was that one of the unexpected, emotionally difficult things would be to figure out what to do with all of her stuff, right? And so she went through it, and when, what, as she went along, she put together um, these books of her mother and their family. And instead of uh, you know, throwing a lot of things out, she put together you know, photographs of their family. Uh, she had found Bible verses that her mother had handwritten out that were important to her. And she put them together into uh, a few volumes and gave them to her mother in the nursing home as a gift. And it, it was as if every day this was a new gift because her mother didn't remember receiving it, but she would love to page through and quietly be reminded of who she was and who loved her. Procedural memory. We said it's like riding a bike. Uh, riding a bike is fine, uh, but what about the church and what about faith communities? So there are many things that we can do that draw upon Procedural memories, and in fact, we do them quite often in churches and faith communities. Old songs and hymns that are familiar for people. 
you know, when I was writing the book, I would get letters from people who wanted to share their experiences and say, you know, I went to visit my parent or my spouse in a nursing home and they had a church service and I was very, you know, hopeful that I would see them responding and, you know, the chaplain gave a little sermon and it, it looked like mom was asleep, nothing, nothing there. But then, you know, they started to play music and they, Amazing Grace was the song. And she said, when I looked at her closer, I thought she was asleep, but I could actually see her lips moving. And she was actually singing every word of the song, right? So we might need to think about different ways of meeting the needs of remembrance for people. Old songs, familiar scripture. Uh, it doesn't need to be about my grandparents, but my other grandfather also had uh, dementia, this very faithful man who'd always been a deacon in the church, the kind of guy who always did things behind the scene that no one ever knew about, but, but somehow I do. But uh, it's just this very gentle, very reverent, loving man. But he developed Alzheimer's. He became very aggressive. Uh, he had to be put into a special memory care unit and you know, no one could interact with him. People come in, he'd kick him out, or he'd ignore him and pretend to sleep. And uh, so the pastor, you know, decided to come visit him, but he wasn't the long-term pastor that he always knew. He was a young guy fresh out of seminary. And he comes in and says, hello, Adrian, do you know who I am? Which is not the way to start, right? And so he kicked him out, and uh, he came to my grandmother and said, what should I do? And she said, well, you're the pastor, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Uh, and to his credit, he did. So he went back and he decided he knew this was a man who had been a part of the church for a long time, and so he just opened up his Bible, right? So familiar scripture. He starts reading Psalm 23. And I want to say it would have been fine if he just read it to him, right? You don't know if he's going to respond or not, but it's a faithful presence. I'm going to read this to you, hoping it sparks remembering but instead of just reading it to him, he basically made it a fill-in-the-blank task. He said, the Lord is my, and he paused. And he filled it in, right? My grandfather, who previously, you know, wanted to hit the guy, wanted to just kick him out of the room, they went back and forth and worked their way all the way through Psalm 23, right? The point that I want to make here is that pastor set up a moment of remembering for him in terms of remembering the Lord, right? And in that moment, he remembered. And that pastor answered that call, right? So you, these are things that are songs, uh, passages, things that we've done so many times that they're like riding a bike. And so these are areas where we can uh, step in. Lord's Prayer, um, you know, some people praying the rosary will work. Point is, you want to show up and uh, do your best. Finally, for emotional memory, I would just say uh, showing up in a particular way. You know, being present uh, is uh, sometimes an overlooked uh, thing to do or skill. So learn to slow down. Be present with the person. It's hard, especially if you're taking care of them in the home, I know. Uh, you know, show them love and honor, pray for guidance, pray with them. Sometimes you can be really surprised by the prayer offered by a person living with Alzheimer's disease. 
so this is a part of um, that idea that they may not always remember what we said and did, but they might remember the way we made them feel. Okay, now I want to say uh, this is all about this call to remember, right? And I'm not saying this takes away the Alzheimer's disease. I'm not saying it changes everything. But what I am saying is if you're living in a parched desert and somebody offers you a cool cup of water, you gratefully receive it. And so when we're talking about ministering to or loving people with Alzheimer's disease, these are things that we can do, and they may be just a moment, right? And they may not remember them later, but in that moment, we're stepping in in grace and love and helping them to remember. So sacred moments, they don't always, quote, work, right? But it's about showing up in love. Okay, I'm going to run short on time, so I'm going to keep moving along. So I got this letter... Uh, from a woman while I was writing Second Forgetting. And she was just looking for men who would come visit her husband and basically understand him both for who he was and his current stage. He had Alzheimer's disease. Um, these were uh, a couple that had made their life as missionaries and Bible translators uh, and had been a part of the church for a long time. And basically when this happened, they were all alone. Uh, they couldn't make it to the church building anymore. So she said these things, and I thought, well, I'd love to go visit this guy. I mean, I'm telling people to do this, so I should do the same thing, right? I should show up and try to do some of these things. I walked in and knocked on the door, or knocked on the door, then walked in. She greeted me warmly, said hello. She said, David's in here. Uh, so I walked in, and he's in his lazy boy recliner, and I walked and I stood in front of him and I greeted him and held out my hand and he just stared straight ahead. And there was no shaking of hands, there was no interaction. And what I didn't know when she sent this letter is that he had really progressed to a stage where even getting a few words out of him was very, very difficult. And sometimes Alzheimer's gets to that stage. And so, you know, we can try to get him to tell his story, but he's really almost nonverbal at this point. And one of the difficulties of Alzheimer's we haven't really talked about is what, how, do you, how do you interact with somebody who's at that stage and, and not knowing someone that you love, what's going on in their head? It's hard to know. Uh, and that brings its own unique pain. So I want to share just a few more uh, biblical encouragements for this later stage, and then I want to talk about uh, caregivers. So one of the things that uh, came to mind with this man is that it was so difficult for him, his wife, to know what was going on, whether he was happy, content, lonely, sad. Uh, and so there is a point where it's hard to know what's going on for people. Uh, but what I want to remind you and what's helpful for me is to remember that God fully knows us, prays for us, and promises to never forget us, even in this stage. So I'm going to share just parts of a few passages, not in whole, but uh, Psalm 139 uh, is a very uh, a favorite psalm for many. Uh, sometimes we talk about it, uh, you know, being formed in the womb, and it has a very different application. But let's just 
think about a few things that are here and think about this man. So you've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. So for this man who can barely speak. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Search me, God, know my heart, test and know my anxious thoughts. Uh, this psalm is just one reminder from Scripture that even when we can't know somebody, that the Lord knows them deeper than we could ever imagine. Romans 8 says that not only does God deeply know us, but that the Holy Spirit is always praying for us. Isn't that a strange and encouraging idea? That the Holy Spirit is always interceding on our behalf. That even when we don't know how to pray, which is often, especially when we're suffering, we don't know how to pray. But when we do pray, we're joining into an ongoing prayer of the Holy Spirit that's been going on, even when we didn't know it. That even when we are interacting with a person who can no longer speak, that the Holy Spirit somehow is interceding on their behalf before the Father, praying for them with groans that we can't even comprehend for our good and in accordance with the will of God. Last one, even when we can't remember, God promises never to forget us. So Isaiah 49, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? That, that happens, right? In Alzheimer's, a, a mother, a father can even forget their children. But though she may forget, as unbelievable as that is, I will not forget you passage goes on to say that our names are written on his hands. So, in a disease of forgetting, in this call to remember, you know, the last answer is not our ability to remember. You know, God wants us to. We're better off when we do. But even when we can't remember him, he promises to remember us. And it's not a choice. But if I had to choose between me remembering God and God remembering me, I'd always choose the second one. Right? So it's much more important that God remembers us than we remember him. And as Romans 8 goes on to say, nothing in all of creation can separate us from his love. So Alzheimer's is a very, very difficult thing. There's no denying it. But these are amazing reminders that God never forgets us. He intercedes uh, for us and that he knows us deeper than we know ourselves. Okay. Let me talk about caregivers because, as I said when we started, uh, Alzheimer's doesn't just affect people who have Alzheimer's in their brain. It affects the people around them. And if you are a caregiver, you already know how difficult this can be, right? It, is, it can be physically exhausting, mentally exhausting. There is an emotional toll 
Many people are grieving for the person even while the person still sits next to them because they're not the same as they used to be. Maybe they're grieving what they've lost. If we're going to talk about what the church can do or what we can do for each other, we have to, have to, have to remember to attend to the needs of caregivers and take care of them just like we would uh, somebody who's living with the disease. Okay, so what does this look like and how can we bring the experience of caregiving uh, and connect it with this call to remember and the journey of faith? So. I'm going to share a few things, and uh, I'm going to have to go through them relatively quickly, but these all came from people who are uh, caregivers for people with dementia. I asked them to share, and this is what they had. So the first was a reminder uh, about the elevated position of sacrificial love in the Bible. Um, Jesus Christ, who the Bible says, through whom the whole world was created, ultimate powerful being, spent one of his last nights washing the feet of his disciples. Humble, sacrificial service. The caregiver who reminded me of this passage said, if Jesus can wash the stinky, dirty feet of the disciples, maybe I can do uh, some of the self-care, or some of the basic care tasks that my mother needs, which are unpleasant, right? She didn't want to, but felt like this was a good reminder. This is a, this is a ministry, right, to care for her in this way. Humble service, sacrificial love uh, is an ongoing theme, especially in the New Testament. Second, uh, sacrificial love is good. It's a good calling. It's a high calling. But remember, you aren't a savior. So if you're caregiving, you can't do it all. You have limits. Uh, you need other people's help. You need help from the Lord. A few passages here that were mentioned uh, from 2 Corinthians. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And one of my favorite passages in all scripture from Jeremiah 17 contrasts what it looks like to trust in your own strength versus trusting in the Lord. One is basically living in a parched desert in a salt land where no one lives and nothing can grow. And the other one is a tree planted by the water. Its roots go down into the stream. Even when heat comes, it never fails to bear fruit and leaves are always green. I don't know about you and where you are in your faith journey, but when I trust in myself, eventually I end up in that parched desert, right? Um, and so this was a call from a caregiver to remember to trust in the Lord for strength. Trusting the Lord for daily need. Uh, one caregiver, uh, an older man, talked about the, the story of Elijah and the widow and the jars of oil and flour that never ran out. Miraculously, there was always enough for the next day. Manna in the wilderness, a great story of God's provision. Uh, what I think is relevant for here is you recall if you tried to store up the manna into the next day, it went bad. You had to go out and gather it that next day to trust that the Lord would provide. But another call from scripture that's relevant to caregiving is sometimes um, you just feel like despite what I said about God won't forget you, but you feel forgotten. You know, Psalm 77 is uh, the psalmist crying out and saying that. Have you forgotten me, Lord? Where are you? I'm suffering. Are you not going to remember me and help me? And it's pretty amazing that the scriptures give voice even to our confusion and doubt. Right? 
significant doubt, angry doubt. So the, the psalmist ends that by remembering the Lord's faithfulness, but I am very thankful to have scripture that tells me that I can be honest with God about how I'm feeling and about my confusion. Taking our burdens to the Lord, this passage from Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Self-explanatory. Last one. So this came from a, a caregiver who was taking care of her husband who had a very rare form of early onset dementia. So they were in their 50s. and She had been reading the biography of Billy Graham and was impressed with how many lives he had affected in his ministry and uh, wanting somewhat to be like that, but she was home uh, with her husband every day. And then she said she woke up one day and, and said she heard some minister to thousands and some minister to one. And she said, you know, I felt like I was experiencing the small voice of the Holy Spirit telling me that this was my ministry to this one man. And she talked about the passage from Matthew 25 where, you know, Jesus encounters his followers one day in heaven and says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was sick and you took care of me. And they say, when did we see you? And he says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And so what might this look like? This is my paraphrase of Matthew 25. So when I was forgetful, you remembered for me. You uh, answered my anxious questions, even though I had asked them many times before. When I was lost, you helped me find my way. You helped take care of my money and gave me medications when I couldn't. When I lost my judgment, you kept me safe. You even changed my clothes and helped me bathe. And what you may hear is, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Last slide, then we'll take questions. It's worth noting that as difficult as all this can be, you know, if our hope is only for this life, um, that's still a pretty tough pill to swallow, right? Um, you know, the book of Revelation talks about how um, we have this long-term hope because God is promising to make all things new. Alzheimer's disease doesn't get the last word. So the passage from Revelation 21 says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain or Alzheimer's or forgetting or behavior problems or caregiver burden and burnout. For the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new.
So Alzheimer's doesn't get the last word. Whatever we're dealing with today, whether it's Alzheimer's or something else, this is the last word. So thank you. I'll take questions. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, so thank you. If you couldn't hear the question, I'm glad you asked because there's a, um, uh, that's a good story there. So how did I handle the man who couldn't speak anymore? Um, so it was a collaboration. Like I couldn't handle him or, you know, do anything. Uh, but part of taking care of a person uh, who can't contribute in the way that they used to is, um, is knowing something about who they were before this happened. And so we tried a few things, he and his wife. Um, she tried to you know, engage him in some stories um, that she thought he might respond to, and he really just never got there that day. Um, but what we decided to do was um, try communion. Uh, and she happened, she was more prepared than I, I will say, and she had um, some grape juice and she had the little communion wafers. Uh, and she asked me if I would read the communion passage from scripture, and I read that. Um, and we took communion together. He ate it, he drank it. Uh, and this one gets me every time, I'm sorry. But then she said, David, do you want to pray? And I, I don't always have perfect faith. I just kind of looked and I thought, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and so we all held hands and he closed his eyes and he just said, Jesus, brother. That was it. But for somebody who, you know, was in the stage that he was, that moment seemed pretty powerful. It did to me. I know it did to his wife. And it's just a reminder, like, this is so difficult. And it seems like he, you know, people would say, he's gone. Why, why are you doing that? And that's just a little reminder. He's not, you know. And, but more importantly, um, you know, God is holding on to him. And I don't know. It, it meant a lot. Uh, so that's how we did it. Um, he was, you know, the, the story behind the story for me a little bit was he was in very late stage. I mean, he couldn't, she could barely get him out of the bed. And they were just, it was sad. I mean, it was a very isolated uh, couple. And uh, it was a case where, as a church, we need to think about how we bring church to them, not bring them to church. Um, but they were, um, they were amazing people. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Yes. That's a great question. Um, so I think that. It depends on where you live. So I don't know. I mean, I know you all live here, at least part of the year. But I don't know what your healthcare system is like. But 
what I recommend for people is the first stop is the doctor who has known you for a long time. But it may not be the last step. So um, some of those doctors that you've had for a long time think it's perfectly normal if you are 80 plus to be very forgetful. Uh, and so if you uh, go to a doctor and have concerns about memory and they don't do a short little screening test, you probably all know these tests by now. I, I know my parents, um, you know, they rehearse them to each other before their annual <laughs> wellness visit. Uh, and that's on us as a field to come up with different tools. But if they're not doing that and they're not taking time to listen about what the concern is and why you're actually asking about it, um, it might be time to uh, look for a different doctor for this purpose. You can keep your doctor, uh, but maybe find a geriatrician. Um, for my, uh, if I have to take somebody in my family for something like this, I would start with a geriatrician, a physician who specializes in old age issues. Um, you don't have to see the neurologist as a first stop. You don't need to see a psychiatrist as a first stop. Uh, but a, a family doc, and if they're good and they do these things, they can, they can handle it. Uh, but if they can't, I would start with a geriatrician. And uh, you should be, I can imagine there are quite a few geriatricians in the area. But uh, if not, there's a group called the American Geriatrics Society, AGS. Um, they have a database you can search uh, for geriatricians. So. so what a geriatrician should do, if you've never had anything like this, is they should take a full history and physical. So they should give a complete review of your bodily systems, take uh, an account of what medical conditions you've had. They should draw blood. They should have you pee in a cup. Uh, they should give you a short screener, a short screening test. So, you know, have you draw a clock, remember some words, uh, you know, name the animals, things like that. If things progress from there, at some point they should order a brain scan. Okay. Now, I said earlier the brain scans can't see the plaques and tangles, but what they need to do is rule out other things. So they need to rule out things like brain tumors, strokes, uh, old brain injury. Um, you know, hydrocephalus used to be referred to as water on the brain. Um, that can mimic some of the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, this is really the standard of care. Um, and so those are some of the things that they should do. Um, they don't need to do them all at once. But the first visit should be relatively comprehensive because there are many things that affect your brain and your memory, not just Alzheimer's, right? So other medical conditions... Uh, they should review what medicines you're on and how long you've taken them. Because sometimes uh, when you're older, you don't need all the medications you used to have and your kidneys and your brains can't handle them like they used to. And sometimes taking people off medicine under the direction of a doctor is uh, very beneficial for your memory. So sometimes people ask the question a little bit differently. They think, well, you said there's not really any great treatment this person clearly is having a problem, so why bother going? What are they going to do? Well, there are all sorts of reversible things that you want them to attend to, right? One of the things that was on that slide of when you should see a doctor was if it came on very rapidly, 
right? That is an automatic. If you have a sudden change in your ability to remember or are very confused or somebody you care about, uh, things as simple as a urinary tract infection can mimic the symptoms of a rapid onset dementia. So uh, once you have Alzheimer's disease, it, it is true that we wish the treatments were better. But if we assume all confusion and memory is Alzheimer's and we don't get it evaluated, you could live with something that might be really treatable. So uh, that's the other side of the coin that we sometimes don't talk about. But um, it's really important. Yeah. Right. Right. That's a good question. If you couldn't hear it over there, so if somebody um, has Alzheimer's disease, has had testing, it's been confirmed, um, is there reason to continue to do it, and what would be the benefit of it? Um, I would say, you're going to hate this, it depends, but here's the reasons why it might make sense and why it might not. So if the diagnosis is relatively clear and no one's questioning it, right? So sometimes there's a question, is this, um, does this person have Alzheimer's dementia or are they in a phase called mild cognitive impairment? They don't have dementia. The testing would be helpful for that. Once the diagnosis has been made, the treatment has been initiated, uh, the only reason I can think about needing to continue to do a full battery of tests is if there were questions surrounding the functional implications, right? So can this person still drive? Do they need more oversight of their money? How do we keep them safe from financial exploitation? Can they live alone? Do they need a higher level of care? But diagnostically, it sounds like the decision was made, but functional implications um, are another reason why you might do testing. But I, as a person who does the testing, there are people who get referred to me, and I think they don't need, to, they don't need this. This is going to be too hard on them. It's clear what their situation is. Uh, so there are cases, and I would just, I don't know, not everybody reacts well to it, but asking, you know, why are you ordering the testing and what do you hope to learn from it is a very fair question when you're going to ask somebody who, you know, frankly, that testing is not fun for people who are forgetful. They don't like it, and they're afraid. And so if we can avoid it, we should. But if we need it, then we just, you know, we've got to work through it. So, is that helpful? OK. Yes? Yes? That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, that's a good question. So if you couldn't hear the question, um, you know, what are my thoughts on memory care versus keeping people at home? So I do have thoughts on that, and it, all these things depend on your particular situation. So the decision about whether to care for people at home um, depends on two things. So one, what is the person's care needs? Two, what can you provide or what could you provide with support and resources, okay? So if you want to keep people at home 
and you can do it safely and uh, not have it, how do I want to say this? Some people will hold to their commitment to keep them at home so strong that they put themselves and their own health in danger and then something happens to them and then neither one of you are in a good spot, right? So, but if you are caring for, let's say a hypothetical scenario, you're caring for a spouse and you wanna keep them home, uh, your ability to provide that care at home will depend on how much they need. So what kinds of tasks do you have to do? It will also depend on whether they start to show what we would call behavior problems, right? Are they gonna wander? Um, will they be up all night while you're trying to sleep after you're exhausted from the day of care? Um, do they show um, resistance to care? Despite your best and loving efforts, do they allow you to care for them or do they fight it? Um, these things can influence how long you'll be able to do that. But we never encourage people in this role as caregiver or care partner to go at it alone, right? So do you have other people who will help you? People who can um, talk things through with you at a minimum or come be with you or be with your loved one while you go, um, you know, do the grocery shopping so you don't have to take them along or hope they're okay while you're gone. They come sit with them while you go get your hair done or go to church or go talk with friends and just recover. So that can be family, that can be friends. If you have means, it can mean you hire people to help in the home. It could mean you get additional services. You know, maybe a nurse comes in that you hire, maybe you get meals delivered. Um, does that make sense, what I'm saying? Uh, yes. 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 And sometimes they do a good job, and sometimes they don't know what to do, right? Uh, I love the church. I've been in the church my whole life. I want to see the church do well. Um, but one of the things, one of the reasons in writing that book and interviewing caregivers for it was, you know, tell me what the church could do for you or what's your church been like? And at that time, in this 10 years ago, maybe things have gotten better, but people said, you know, they didn't, they didn't know what to do. So once we stopped showing up on Sunday, they forgot about us. And I said, well, what, what was one thing that they could have done differently? And the number one answer was very consistent. It was presence. And I said, you know, just they showed up or you know, called me to ask how I was doing and see if we needed anything, you know? Uh, so I, my dream is to see the churches better equipped to understand what's happening in Alzheimer's disease. And so if one of you has it and the rest can step in and say, hey, could I bring by lunch, right? You know, one person told me they knew of a, of a couple who uh, the man got Alzheimer's disease and the church didn't do anything because they didn't know what to do. That's the biggest problem. No one knows what to do. And then the man got diagnosed with cancer two years later and everybody showed up with casseroles, right? Because they knew when you get sick, you bring meals. Why not bring the meals? It's just different, right? But if we can learn how to engage and how to support, the church could do amazing things. So to your question about home care, uh, I'm all for it. Uh, 
but sometimes when you're the caregiver, your health fails. Or, you know, maybe you are, uh, maybe you weigh 100 pounds and aren't as strong as you used to be, and the person you need to care for weighs 300, and you need to help get them up out of bed. Uh, that's going to be really hard, right? There are assistive devices, but it's all a matter about what they need and what you have. So uh, I think we'll see more home care despite the construction of more memory care. Um, the trend is definitely what we call aging in place, right? And COVID exposed nursing homes as inadequate, right? That was very incredibly hard for people regardless of how you feel about COVID and the way it was managed. Being stuck there and isolated from people you cared about was very bad for people. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yes, so the question is, you know, we can't stop the progression, but are there things that we can do that make it better? And the related question, is there anything we can do to delay? the onset. So this is actually really encouraging, right? So this is an area of Alzheimer's research that's gotten better. Um, it's pretty common sense, but it looks like it is very helpful. So physical exercise, regular and consistent physical exercise has a positive effect on Alzheimer's in the present and delaying onset. So that means cardiovascular exercise. It also means strength training. So as we get older, that is just as important as getting the heart going, okay? So physical exercise, um, cognitive engagement, use it or lose it kind of principle actually looks like it holds. Uh, you do not have to do crossword puzzles. You do not have to buy Lumosity. Uh, but what you do need to do is find ways to challenge your brain in a regular way. I would encourage you to find things that challenge your brain that you enjoy. Because the effect is not so powerful that if you're like, I hate crossword puzzles, I hate jigsaw puzzles, then don't do them. Find something else to do, read, learn a new skill. There's a variety of things. If you play an instrument, play your instrument. You know, uh, Those are two. Uh, social engagement. We don't really understand why this is the case, but people who are socially isolated and lonely have higher risk for Alzheimer's. Uh, and it isn't due to depression, which also increases people's risk. So being socially uh, connected with people is very important. A healthy diet, we go back and forth in the field on Mediterranean diet versus these other things. I think we all understand what a healthy diet is, lower sugar, lower fat. Um, I would say, you know, alcohol has become more controversial. Um, it looks like that's not helpful at all. Um, so uh, I'm forgetting one. Is there an obvious one I'm missing because they are? But, oh, sleep is good. Yes, nutrition, sleep is good. Um, uh, untreated hearing loss looks like it actually is a risk factor as well. So getting your hearing checked makes sense. I hate it because I can't hear very well. No. I, that, that research literature is so controversial, I can't recommend anything. Um, vitamins. Vitamins, over-the-counter products. What I will say is if you want to take something over-the-counter, that you think is going to affect your memory, you have to promise me you'll talk to a geriatrician about it and see if they agree. Because some of those things actually make it worse, and they promise to make your memory better. There is no magic pill over the counter. If there was, 
we'd all be taking it, right? You would know. You would know. So um, there was a new multivitamin study that showed a positive effect. So something simple like that, why not, right? Um, I still think I'm forgetting one. Oh, I got it. Heart health. So anything that's good for your heart is good for your brain. And if you have heart problems, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, please manage it well. Because when you don't manage your vascular risk factors well, it increases your risk for Alzheimer's. So. Yes. Yes. That's a good question. So if you couldn't hear the question, we were talking about the hippocampus and that file storage system. Would speaking things out loud or maybe talking it out help? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it could hurt. Um, but there's a, there's a real difference between uh, what works and is helpful when you are normally aging and when you have Alzheimer's. And so one of the things that um, has become apparent is a lot of the compensatory methods that we use, like making lists, written reminders, um, you know, different sort of mnemonic strategies to remember things, don't work well for people with Alzheimer's. And so when people are normally aging, they'll get some benefit for them. And when people are starting to have Alzheimer's, those things really fall off. Um, so if that sort of talking out strategy um, helps you remember better in the moment, then do it. But I don't think it's going to, one, affect the health and function of the hippocampus. Uh, it's just, it's too minor of a thing in comparison to the more dramatic things that are happening to it. Uh, but the other thing is, when you're trying to coach somebody with Alzheimer's disease to remember better, it just, in the end, doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Very good question. Yes. So um, the question was, if what's that? Yeah, I'm going to say it. Um, if you have a mild cognitive disability or what we call mild cognitive impairment or MCI, uh, does it always progress or can it stay stable? I'm so glad you asked because uh, that diagnosis is very common. So mild cognitive impairment refers to a state in which you have genuine memory problems. So they can detect them on testing, um, but you're still functioning independently. Whereas in dementia, we said you've got these memory problems, and it's affecting your independence, your ability to remember medication, bills, drive, things like that. Mild cognitive impairment is very, very common, um, but it's also a very broad category. Right? So anytime you show some problems on testing and you still are doing your normal walking around independent life, that's mild cognitive impairment. It catches a lot of things. And um, my concern with it is when we don't explain what it is well, people will um, consult the internet, right? which is what you do with every medical problem. 
And what the internet will tell you is mild cognitive impairment is early Alzheimer's, right? And that's true for some people, but it's not true for everyone. And so what the research has shown is that some people who have mild cognitive impairment, they definitely have higher risk for dementia than people without it. But you could split the, sample, the number of people who have mild cognitive impairment. Some people will decline and get dementia. Some people will stay stable and stay right at that forgetful level for a long period of time, and some will improve. It's kind of confusing, right? And they don't always tell you that because, uh, well, I don't know why they don't tell you. I tell people that. Um, what we don't know yet is what predicts whether you're going to stay the same, get better, or get worse, right? Uh, some people who have mild cognitive impairment have the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's disease, right? So as we get these new tests on board, they're just going to start running those tests. Um, but the way most people treat or uh, manage that condition from a healthcare perspective is they say, we're going to monitor it and see how it goes, and we want you to come back and get retested a year later to see, and then we'll know, is it getting better or stable or worse? So it leaves you in this massive uncertainty, which most people don't like, uh, but it's far from certain that it will progress. So that's the most honest answer I can give for that one. Yes? Hi. Hi. My daughter was just recently here from Austin, Texas. Yep. She drives a Ram truck. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Every time there was a problem, she'd say, Mom, gotta see the lemonade. Yeah. So I'm sitting over there at the refrigerator for a lemonade. I'm just saying, I'm just putting it out there. Get yeah. some lemonade. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Everybody's got an answer. Yeah, that's true. Well, and I think um, there's some truth to that, right? So one of the things that we have inadvertently done and maybe I've even done it today, and if I did, I, I want to apologize, but we've wanted people to know about Alzheimer's disease for so long, right? And we want people to know what's happening in the brain and the way it can progress, because we want people to be aware and do something about it. But the unintended effect is we've scared people to death, and we've convinced people that all you can expect is suffering and decline. And there are people who are living with Alzheimer's disease who, uh, are relatively content and they're doing things that are meaningful and that they enjoy and until we get to a space where we can say both of these things are true this is a very difficult condition that causes many people many suffering but some people can live without suffering you know they're very forgetful and they're dependent uh, on other people but you know they'll go do things that they enjoy and they're relatively happy uh, there is a bit in which the way that we talk about it and frame it influences what people will experience. And so if that's what you mean, I mean, sometimes you do have to make lemonade, uh, but I also don't want people to say, well, we're minimizing it and saying it's not a, not a big, difficult deal. Yes? What are the most important parts of the brain to pray for? The most important parts of the brain to pray for? Well, um, Man, you really need all of them, right? Uh, I, I, I'm, because there used to be this kind of this thing, you know, we only use 10% of our brain, you know, that, that's just not true. It's just that 
we, you know, a lot of our brain structure supports the other parts of the brain. It's actually doing things. But I would say, but, you know, your brain controls your memory, your language. Um, it affects your personality. It affects your movement and your feelings. Um, I would say, I, don't, I mean, let's not limit, you know, which ones we pray for. But uh, I think one of the things that's most hard for people is when they lose the ability to communicate. And you can no longer, you know, go back and forth. Um, and that's in your frontal lobes and your temporal lobes. And, um, but yeah, it's a good question. I have never, never had that one. I've never thought about it that way. Did you? Uh, we'll continue this. Uh, I'll stick around. Dr. Matt. She just had one, one more. <laughs> Yeah. I wish I could say I wish I could say that, so there's a lot of people working on it um, and I don't want to sound cynical. Yeah. No, I know. I, I'm yes, I understand. Um, it's So let me contrast it really quickly, okay? So uh, what countries in Western Europe they have national Alzheimer's plans and they have themes. So like in the UK right now, their theme is how do we as a government and all associated entities help people live well with dementia? That's fantastic, right? Because it's thinking not only about the person's functioning and medical treatment, but also how do we design communi uh, communities to help people function better longer? Um, you know, we have, um, we are much more assessment and treatment focused in the United States. And we are very big on um, biotech and treatment. And so you're going to see a lot of that. I think the leader is the National Institute on Aging, but that's largely research. Um, the Alzheimer's Association is still a great resource, um, but they're pushing the new treatments really hard. Uh, if I ever need to refer people to a community resource, it's always the Alzheimer's Association. But um, I, I don't know, maybe it's my age. I'm just getting a little cynical about who's doing what and what their end goal is. And I think we could have a more unified system. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, that is there. Yes. Well, gerontology is, is a good option, but what has changed is the we are now recognizing that all of these disciplines need to be trained in working with older people and to recognize things like dementia. So whether you're psychology or social work or you are a med student, it's infused into all the curricula. So that has changed, and that's, that's an improvement. So sorry, I went cynical on you there for a minute. So um, he has kindly uh, assented to
signing books. If you want to purchase books, we have books over here. Nancy is sitting at the book table. Normally, these books sell for $386. But because of our volume purchasing, we can sell them here for $15. So we'll have them over here. Dr. Massett, he would sign it. And, um, and perhaps if you have a, another more personal question, you can address it with him at that time. Uh, Dr. Mass, thank you very much. We sure do appreciate it and making it available to us. Um, tomorrow, uh, Dr. Mass will be speaking, uh, I think you have two lectures, at uh, McGregor Baptist, which is on Colonial in Fort Myers. We're going to have a few folks up there for that. And if you wanted to join, I think we could probably persuade them. I'm sorry? Okay. Rachel will help you to register. <laughs> That's what you meant by we, didn't you? <laughs> okay, now, in March, we have um, two things coming to you from this, uh, the Life Transitions team. Um, you know, uh, Dr. Poland. <laughs> Dr. Poland is going to be uh, teaching, uh, well, he'll be redoing his lecture on how to live to 100. How to live to 100 is no good unless we have this other piece of it figured out. But, uh, but, but if you saw that once, he's done some um, adjustments in his presentation, and that will, um, I think that will be a good, a good lecture. And then Gene, his wife, is going to be teaching the week after. Rachel, where are those dates? and nutritious because you know remember what Greg said uh, if it tastes good spit it out right <laughs> so we're, we're hoping we can get past that so uh, that's it uh, thank you very much for being here we appreciate your attendance uh, we have some um, cu cupcakes and cookies and some coffee back here in the fellowship hall if you want to stand around and chat for a while please do that we have a lot of cupcakes and cookies uh, don't make me eat them all. <laughs>